If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Lord willing and by his grace, we will work through verses 12 through 18. <clears throat> it always sounds funny because that's a lot of verses. If you come to our men's study, men, you realize that we could spend a few weeks just on half a verse, it seems like, sometimes. It's because we have good discussion as we dig into it. Well, we're going to continue to look at this passage. If you remember, um, you know, Paul is dealing with these peddlers, right? There's some peddlers, he says, this is the end of chapter 2, are peddling the Word of God. And so he's addressing, in, through chapter 3, uh, them, not directly. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and of course they are realizing what they have in the new covenant. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that here is a, is a young church, a church plant, and even though the, the old covenants and Judaizers is much more prevalent than what we would see today, Paul doesn't hesitate to, to really dig into uh, theology, right? He doesn't veer away and say these things are too deep for this group of people. He doesn't think that at all. He rather drives into the text. He drives into clarity on what it means to be a part of the new covenant community, right? I mean, for him, this is what we'll see here in a moment is where his boldness comes from. It's where his passion comes from, right? It is the fact that this doesn't wear out, right? He's going to try to do his best to wear out the gospel, and he's not going to wear it out. And this is his heartbeat. And so he's going to continue as we finish up this passage, this contrast between the old covenants and the new. The new covenant surpasses it. The old covenant is a, is a ministry of death. The new is one of life, right, as he's been talking about these things. Um, but it really comes down, right? I called this, this message this morning, the power and impact of spiritual truth. And we could put, of course, new covenant, but I want to just speak of really of God's truth. I mean, Paul is driven and he's motivated with, with profound confidence that God's truth is true, Right? That may sound very basic, but this is, right, who he is. And this is how he's addressing those who are attacking this church and creating some confusion. And I think, you know, here is something the early church uh, it did, did for, for even all their struggles, did well, right? So they got into the, the Bible. Even Peter says some of Paul's letters are difficult, right? But they didn't say, you know what, it's too tough. Let's not, let's not, let's do something else. You know, they got into it, and I think today the church needs to be aware of that. All right? Us, and of course, church in America, we need to have a, a realization that God's truth, when it's open and it's taught, there is power, there's power and impact of his truth. There was a story of a, of a lady who worked at an umbrella factory, and she had gone to her pastor and was telling him that she may have to find another job. And of course, he asked the basic questions, did they fire you, you know? That would be the first thought in my mind, did, they, did you get fired? And of course, she says, no, I, I didn't. And he goes, well, what's going on? Is there not enough work there? And she says, there's plenty of work there. The problem is, right, they have so much work, they don't have enough electricity to man the machines. And the machine I, I work on is shut down multiple times throughout the week, and I just can't make it on, on the times I get to work. I don't have enough finances. But then she makes this statement. She says, the trouble 
with the factory is that they have more machinery than power. And I read that and I thought, and that kind of sounds like our problem in American Christianity is the church has more gimmicks, right? Or more things that we're going to lean upon as opposed to just simply opening the Bible and seeing the power of God and his word work. So Paul has this heart, right? He's, he's going to not only encourage the Corinthians, he's going to push upon them and say, this is what we have. There's boldness that comes from knowing Christ. There's also an awareness of those who are lost, right, what the Word of God does. And, of course, there's the trust and the work of the power of the Spirit. So this is what he says. This is verses 12 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Let me offer a brief prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you again for this time you've given to us that we can turn to your word, the freedom, Lord, that we have, America to do so. We thank you for that. And I simply ask that your spirit would teach us and instruct us that, Lord, um, we would not walk out following this service and forget about what your word says, but let it grow in us. And so, Lord, teach us now commit it to you. I pray you get me out of the way that, Lord, we would receive what you have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned the last time we were looking at this, I, I had gone through uh, the, the narrative, how God reveals himself throughout history, right? He comes to us in way of narrative. And we see this, especially in this passage where Paul is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. We need to know something about the Old Covenant. And you see this throughout, right, throughout the Bible, throughout Israel's history, even before Israel was Israel. You see God moving and unfolding his plan through covenants. The very first covenant, which was a conditional covenant, was with Adam. Right? Adam, it wasn't a very difficult one. Let's be honest, right? I, I said this, but... He got to enjoy everything in, in the garden. It saved, right, the one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. His wife, of course, Eve was deceived. She got Adam to eat. Adam worshiped creation, not the creator. Here's the problem. He broke the covenant. He disobeyed. So because of that, and I, I know I mentioned this last time, right, is this being spring, right? There was a curse on the ground. Man's going to have to work the ground. So when it rains, you ever notice when it rains outside and you don't have hydrangeas grow or roses grow or 
right, uh, uh, tulips or, or whatever, daisies. There's weeds. You don't have to do anything and we get weeds, right? Well, here you go, right? Work the ground. So it's a conditional covenant. The second one is one of grace, right? We see it in, in God's answer to this problem. He is going to send a Savior. He's going to crush the head of, of, the, of Satan. That is an unconditional covenant, right? He fulfilled in Christ. That's where, that's where we're heading to, the new covenant. The third covenant was with Noah. It's unconditional. God promises that he will not flood the earth again. That's a good one, right? The fourth covenant we see is with Abraham. God is going to build. When he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, God is going to build a posterity. There is a people. Even before he was the nation Israel, right, we see that all believers ultimately are right, a part of the lineage of Abraham, this covenant. We are God's people. It's unconditional, right? God promised to do that. He is doing that. Even today, we preach his word. And of course, the fifth one, which is what Paul is contrasting, and it's called the law of Moses, or the, uh, the moral law, this moment, right? The covenant with Moses, where the, the law is given to Moses. All of it is given, and it's meant to demonstrate to the, the children of Israel that, um, man, guess what? We're not perfect, right? That's the job of the law. The law shows us that we are sinners, but the law cannot, nor is it designed to do so, save us, right? It's meant to expose this. It's mo- meant to show us, guess what? Um, I'm doomed, right? That's why Paul calls it the ministry of death. And it's also the vehicle where we see when Christ comes, right? He fulfills the law. Why is it awesome that Jesus is born sinless and lives a sinless life because he deals with our problem, right? The greatest need that you and I have is right. We need righteousness. We need redemption. And the greatest gift that God gives us is the righteousness of Christ. See, Jesus was sent into the world for redemption, not to condemn it, but to redeem it. But those who do not believe are condemned already. That's what John tells us in John 3. So as we think about the new covenant and how it unfolds, we're to realize that uh, the old isn't to be just simply um, rejected. It's not opposed to the new, but it's meant to be replaced. Right? The old covenant is to be replaced. Of course, the new covenant was to come. This is what God is revealing to us. And so last time as we worked through these verses, we, we learned that the new covenant initiates spiritual life. It's only in Christ, right? The new covenant excels in righteousness. It has to, right? Because we can't get it from the law. We can only get it through Christ. The new covenant eclipses the old, right? It's superior. It surpasses is what um, Paul says, right? There is a glory, far exceeds that of Moses and his time spent with God when he was glowing, right? There is a, a glory that far exceeds that of Moses, and of course it is Jesus. And we also learned that it's permanent. Right? God isn't going to bring another covenant. This is it. We are a part of that new covenant. So what does Paul do as he walked us through all that? And I know I went kind of quickly. If you have questions about that, talk to me later. But we got to get to this, this sermon, right? I haven't even started yet. Some of you, some of you know I'm not joking. No. <clears throat> what, are, what, is, what does this do for us? You know, how does this motivate us? You know, we understand these things that we're in this and, and God has done something miraculous. Well, look at what Paul does. 
Here's Paul's response. This is why I said spiritual truth inspires boldness, and it should in every believer. He says, therefore, right? We talked about these covenants, permanency of the covenant, the replacing of the covenant. Therefore, having such a hope, we have great boldness in our speech. Right? There it is. I'm not wavering. He says, and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. So the Corinthians reading this letter are going, well, what do we do with this, right? What's going on with it? Well, Paul tells them, you know, I planted, Paul has planted this church. He is, he is the one who has communicated and taught them all these things. And he comes and he says, this is why we are bold, not unto ourselves, not unto my title, not because of who I am, but I am bold because of what Christ has done. Paul's confidence is the gospel. Right? That sounds like an oversimplification, but this is the reality of it. Paul is running uh, with something where he believes that God's word is true. Right? God is true. God's truth doesn't change, otherwise it ceases to be truth. He rejects any idea of the culture or any person dictating what truth and reality is. There's his, his paradigm. Right? We're going to see that in a few verses we'll look at here in a moment. So because the covenant is superior, the new covenant is greater, Paul concludes, here it is, you should have boldness in your speech. Right? And he's referencing the idea of boldness with speech is, in essence, the right to free speech. It's a public nature of ministry. We're going to come and boldly preach the gospel. So for Paul, the boldness comes, it's an outgrowth, right, of what the gospel is. See, when a believer understands, right, the saving power of Jesus Christ, I would imagine we want to tell others about it. We want to say, this is what the Lord has done. Begin to grow in your confidence in the faithfulness of God. He took a wretched sinner like me who was blind and he made me see. Come, right? Come and follow. Come and hear about who this is. There's a boldness that should be growing in all of us. We've come to believe if we understand the holiness of God and how all our sin is against him and yet because he's full of grace and mercy, because he is patient, because he is love, he sends a savior to redeem us. Man, what a great God. So Paul is saying, look, we are greater than Moses. Why is that? Because our covenant isn't going to fade away, right? It's not going to fade away. It's not going to come to an end. This is the covenant that is going to stand for all eternity. All those who believe on Jesus Christ, who are saved in Christ, will be loved eternally because of Christ, right? That's a good thing because this is based on who God is and what God has done so note the words at the end of verse 13 paul says uh, the sons of israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away see people saw when they saw the glory shining on moses he had to cover it he needed to be veiled there's a tendency to fade away to to walk away or not to be close the glory of God. And we're going to see this as this naturally flows into the next point where Paul is going with this, but it's important to understand that people today are the same way. 
We don't naturally want to come and talk about sin. We want to write those things off. Light has come into the world, and we prefer darkness, not light. And so when light comes, when truth comes, we typically say, I don't want any part of that. Because we're suppressing truth. See, today, a lot of people may look to the law or look to other things as a way of earning their right with God. There's something I'm sure I have to add or something I have to do. I mean, Moses becomes an illustration for Paul of, of those who are lost, those who, who their minds are hardened. This is where he's going. Those who are attempting to please God on their own merit. So Paul is saying our boldness isn't in this. It's not in Moses. It's in what God has done through Christ. This is where our boldness comes from. Remember, he's dealing with these people who are peddling the word, right? These Judaizers, the beginning of chapter 3, who are coming and they're saying, hey, Paul hasn't even brought to you letters of recommendation. And Paul says, you are my recommendation. Look what God is doing in you. See, the law is a ministry of death. The gospel, the new covenant, is a ministry of life. And yet today, people need, right? What do they need? What's their primary need? They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've had conversations. I've spoken to people throughout my years, and some just think I'm pretty good. I'll be all right. No. You're not going to be all right. Some people like to say there's not going to be a judgment. Let's just write this off. No, there's going to be a judgment. These are important. We need to be, as believers, as followers who've been redeemed, we need to be a voice, right? Because there is people who are lost. You know, look at, uh, I put this in, in uh, your notes, Acts 17, 24 through 31. Just dawned on me, I have two colons there. I didn't put the number right. But um, listen to how Paul reasons. Right? He's come and he sees all of these people who are, are worshiping other gods. And this is his sermon to the lost. Listen to what Paul says. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You see his objective truth. There's God. He's made everything. Okay, this is the reality of Paul's working. Verse 25 says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation about adam from adam right we have people verse 27 that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, right? Everyone is created by God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the uh, by the arts and thoughts of man. And here's his conclusion to this. As he's told these things, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. There is a message that doesn't go over well today, is it? 
He tells us why. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, when Paul comes and he plants a church, or Paul is doing ministry, he's writing to a church of believers, if they're struggling, what does he do? He doesn't shy away from Scripture. He goes right to the heart of the problem. Here is the confidence that you and I have today, just like Paul, that we can be bold in our speech, not offensive or arrogant. He's talking about just boldness and proclamation that we can tell people about Jesus. There are some things that we need to communicate And one of them would be that God is holy and there is a day in which he is fixed and where he will judge. So our voice needs to be amongst Paul and others throughout history, right? To be a voice of truth because this is where, right, God saves. How does he save it? Through the proclamation of his word. Paul understands this. This is why I titled this, this is the power and impact of spiritual truth. Right, but what does the church do? We, we, we rely on gimmicks. We rely on you know, other things. We should just open that and teach it. This is where our boldness, our confidence come from. And this is why, as Paul goes on to verses 14 and 15, right, my next point is simply this. Rejecting spiritual truth hardens the mind. That's what he says. Here's the contrast. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Why? Because it's only removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So there's consequences to unbelief. Here's the reality of non-believers, right? They are spiritually blind, right? The Bible speaks of them as being spiritually dead, and yet they're going to try to make their own way. Listen to Scripture, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, right? God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all all our transgressions. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul's even going to go on and say in, in the second, or the, excuse me, the chapter 4, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, right? If it's hidden, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So it's very important to realize there's only two spiritual families on the planet, right? Those who are still in Adam, born in Adam because of sin, and those who are born again because of Christ. See, it was Paul's, you know, his boldness and his passion, right, and his calling as an apostle led him to just plant churches, right? He was a missionary, and he did this in Corinth. He would come to the synagogues of the Jews, and he would preach in the Jewish synagogues. And, and uh, often, right, he was rejected, right? We don't want anything to do with that. Some Jews would even pursue him to other cities, giving him a hard time trying to silence him. So ultimately, he changed directions, right? And he would usually be welcomed by God-fearing Gentiles. See, today there is a rejection. There are people today who don't want to hear the gospel. That's the reality of it. 
Some will call you, if you go back to Acts 17, just as they treated Paul as a babbler. Paul goes on to explain in Romans, you know, why do they reject this? His heart for the Jews and their hearts are hardened, right? I mean, of, of all the people who should be rejoicing, there's a Savior who has come, it is the Jews. But in Romans 9 through 11, Paul just tells us, here's what God is doing. Here's the doctrine of election. Here's the hardening of hearts. In Romans 10, 1 through 3, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So this is what it means to have a veil over their hearts, right? Their minds are hardened. See, Paul is using this word as as like this, the psychological faculty of understanding, right? What you think about God, your reasoning, your thinking, right? You're deciding. It corresponds that with heart, right? It's, it's who you are. It's how you think, the plans and purposes of you. Psalms, or excuse me, Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Right? So as you think, as you reason, what you think about God, your thoughts about God matter. See, one of the damages that we have is we come to Scripture and we may say, well, I like this part or not, not, not that part, and we might reject some of these things, or we might rewrite some Scripture in our minds to go, this is the kind of God I want, and, and we may think, well, that's who he is now, right? We, we change things. This is why I always say, always be reforming, right? Bring your thoughts under Scripture. Are your thoughts right about who God is? Because they matter. And the more we think about, right, incorrect thoughts about God, the harder it is to have those thoughts changed. See, we are what we plan, think, right? What we conceive, our identity is in our actions and our words and our works, What's important to us is demonstrated in our life. We're either walking with God or walking away from him, right? We're either serving him or serving self. This is the reality of why it's important for Paul's boldness to come back and to say, look at who Jesus is. This is why Paul has a passion for theology. This is why the Bible never goes away from, from a situation or an issue to say, let's just make it easier for us. It never does that. Paul is, is a classic example, right? All the New Testament writers, all of Scripture is to dig harder into what the Bible actually teaches because what we think about God matters. It's easy today to say, you know what? There's a different standard. I set the standard. And that's what's popular. That's the postmodern mind. If there's truth, it's a lowercase t, and it's subject to what I think it should be. Nowhere is that in Paul's reasoning or his thinking. And what we have today are many who have, who have their minds are getting hard, right? They believe in a, in a false reality of, of what truth is. We, we just relegate it to subjectivism, and it's, it's what I think it should be. Paul's not going to allow this church to do that because this is the heart of the contention here is how the Corinthians are reasoning, how they are thinking, 
Paul knows if these false teachers come in there, if they combine, these Judaizers combine the old covenant with the new and create something radically different, Paul's going to realize that they're not thinking right. Their minds are going to be hardened. There's going to be a veil over their hearts. But see, it even goes beyond that. It's not just our thinking, right? What what other elements of our life does that our thinking affect? It, It affects our affections, you know, I don't, I don't go to church anymore because I just, I don't think I need it. You may say, that may sound radical to some, but if you're familiar with Rob Bell, he used to be this big-time pastor, very emergent, a lot of bad theology, a lot of bad thoughts about God, who's in a position today where he doesn't attend church. On Sundays, he goes and I believe he surfs. Although I'm not sure if he's still pastoring, but his church was 10, 12,000 people. Thoughts matter, right? Our, our hearts should be soft, right, to these things because it affects our, our, our judgments, it affects our purposes, it affects how we relate to one another, right? They matter about God, and so Paul is addressing the way they are thinking. Remember, he's talked about uh, the stones. We have something that's not written in stone, it's written on our flesh. We had a heart of stone, but now we have a heart of flesh that has God's law written on it. We beat with a different heartbeat, right? There is change in our life. But today we see minds that are slowly, right? They, they're slowly eroding away or, or moving away or getting harder. This is why ministry of children and youth and college is important. Not just getting them together, but digging into theology. Here's the warning that Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through 25. He begins by talking of the wrath of God. Just as there's judgment in Acts here, he speaks of the wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident. It's evident within them. Why? Because God made everything. God made them. God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his internal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Right? Here's the, here's the turnaround. Right? Here's the postmodern mind. They, now, we are the wise ones. And the Bible is foolish, right? Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over and the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. So that's Adam's sin. It's manifested. See, here's the point, right? When we talk about hardening our hearts, we cannot separate divine, the divine act of judgment from the human act of rebellion. 
So it matters what we think about. It matters how we understand our theology. It matters that we would come back and trust God. Are my thoughts about God true to Scripture, or are they not? And let's fix that. See, non-believers are unable to save themselves, and yet they, they think, I'm going to be okay. I'm a pretty good person. I was sharing that joke with you with Gabe at Bible College. We all tease Gabe, if you get into heaven before us, you'll be my Achilles heel. I'll just say, if you let Gabe in, right, so you've got to let me in. It doesn't work like that. Your name has to be written, right? This is the power, the boldness, the confidence of the new covenant, what Christ has accomplished. You know, back in Spurgeon's day, they there were many who would try to protect uh, the gospel, right? We don't want anybody to, to interfere with it or, or misunderstand it or something. And Spurgeon's response to these guys were just let the lion out. Let him out, right? He says, I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. He says, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. Amen, Spurgeon, right? But do you realize how this has changed today? Today, unfortunately, with a breaking heart, there are many in the church who would preach uh, not this. We would not talk of letting the lion out or speaking of sin and the holiness of God. We would keep the, the gospel back, as it were, to protect right, the people. We don't want to be an offense. This is why many churches rely on gimmicks. I know it's much easier to get together, and some things of Scripture are difficult and hard, and they pierce into our hearts. And don't think on Sundays like this where you're going, wow, he's, he's really preaching it. My toes are bloody too. But this is what we need. This is what my heart needs. We need to trust the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It is Paul, right? Paul who realizes this is the power and the impact the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, spiritual truth comes alive. Open the word. Let the lion out. So we see this should inspire us in boldness, right? Understand what you have. Good theology. It leads believers to be strong and bold and confident. It hardens the minds. There is a rejection of non-believers, which should impress upon us ever more so. Don't yield in your evangelism, right? But lastly, I simply say this through Christ, spiritual truth produces eternal hope and glory. Right here, it comes back, if you will, to the exclamation point. There's the contrast. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Right Here's our hope. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Right? Here's the contrast. The believer in Moses, right? So just as Moses got to go and, and enjoy the glory of God, the believer through the new covenant enjoys, right, the glory of God. How about you? But I must be I'm really excited about that. And maybe I'm the only one, but that's okay. 
right? Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. Here's the hope, right? Here's the contrast. If, if, if you know of someone whose heart is going hard, don't yield, right? Continue to pray, continue to evangelize, because when the veil goes, and it can go, God can take the hardest stone and rip it out of somebody and put a heart of flesh. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's every single one of us, right? It's spiritually discerning, but this is what it produces. We have an eternal hope, an eternal glory. So when anyone comes and repents of their sins, believes on the Lord, right? That person becomes a Christian. They become a part of a follower there. The veil is taken. They begin to think of life differently. They begin to think in terms of maybe more spiritually. Christ not only saves them from sin, but the ignorance and the bondage of sin, of not thinking rightly, our minds are renewed. See, this is what Jesus says in John 3, 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See, there's two spiritual families. One is in Adam, one is in God. You must be born again. But those born again, the power of the Spirit, have this eternal hope. An eternal home, right? Just as Christ grabbed hold of Paul on that Damascus road, the Spirit of the Lord, as Paul says, right? He's the one who opens our eyes. The veil is over the Jews. Their understanding, the believer's eyes are opened and spiritually discerned. Paul told him this in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, <clears throat> combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself appraises, is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is saying, look, when we come, the Spirit has, has birthed in us new life, we have a freedom like no other. Freedom, right, from the law. We have freedom from sin and condemnation. We have freedom from the fear of death. Oh, man, that's good stuff. Freedom from the penalty of our sins. We're free, right, from the evil powers of this age. We're free from the mental veil, right, the, the ignorance that we have. We, we were free from, from the the garbage of our life, the sin, like the guilt. All our cares, our concerns, we can lay them down. We can realize that we have mercy and grace. We have been forgiven, not some of our sin, but all of it. We have a freedom to live for him, just like the apostles who rejoiced when they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. That now dwells in us. 
We have freedom to work out our, our holiness, to grow in our purity, not to earn right standing, right? Not to earn salvation, but to bring glory to God's name. And just as Moses, right, uh, took off the veil when he went into the Lord's presence, every Christian now can behold the glory of God as we come into his throne room of grace. That's what we get. Jews rely, right, on a priest to mediate between them and God. Christians rely on Christ's saving work at the cross. We have direct access to the Father. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. I love this quote from Warren Worsby. He says, Warren Worsby, under the old covenant, only Moses ascended the mountain and had fellowship with God. But under the new covenant, all believers have the privilege of communion with him. Through Jesus Christ, we may enter into the very holy of holies and we don't have to climb a mountain. Some of us are excited about that. He talks about mirroring and reflecting. Do you realize when Moses went into the presence of God, he reflected, right? This is why he had to, uh, to put a veil upon his face. The believer going into the presence of God can reflect as a mirror, right, to others. This is who God is. God desires to manifest his presence through his people, his church. This is why we never, right, sacrifice truth, because we want to be true to God's word, that we might represent who he is. See, the reality is when we come to Calvary, every single one of us, we are changed forever. We are changed forever. Calvary changes us. We have the work of the Spirit actively in us. Yes, we have good days. We'll have days we'll struggle, but this is the power and impact of God's truth. This is what it should be doing in us. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect. It means that we're heading in a way that is growing in holiness, growing in our sanctification, working out our salvation. This is how the Holy Spirit works. God is shaping you and I into the image of his Son. See, under the new covenant, all Christians behold and reflect the glory of the Lord. Inward out. Right? Our character changes. So here's the power. Here is the impact. Right? The trouble with that factory is they had more machinery than power. The trouble with the church is more gimmicks. Relying on anything else. God's word. This is Paul's passion. It's his boldness. You and I can be bold. Non-believers need to hear the gospel. It's what they need. Don't shy away from it. Rest in the fact that you have an eternal hope, an eternal glory. It doesn't fade. It doesn't end. It's based upon God. It's based upon Christ, what they have done for you. It leads us, right, to worship and praise. Here in a moment, I'm going to close in prayer, but I just want to, I want to mention our closing song, which is Christ, our hope in life and death. And I just want to read the first stanza that so you would connect, right, as we sing, as we hear his word. And the first stanza says this, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. 
What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. See, Paul understood that. He knew where he was going. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? He rules over everything, right? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. This is our boldness, our confidence. It is the power and impact of God's truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You are true to your word. You change not. You are mighty, all-powerful. You speak and things are created. You sustain us, Lord, every single day. Every breath we breathe by your grace, by your mercy. We are, Lord, what we are by your grace. We thank you, God, that even though you're all-powerful, that you are... You fill all space and time, yet you are beyond it. Lord, yet you concern yourself with us. We thank you, Lord, for Calvary, for the cross. Thank you, Lord. We can't say it enough for Jesus. Help us. And I pray every soul here this morning that that our hope and our confidence would grow, that we would have that boldness. We would realize that that. We have an eternal hope that you are faithful to it. It's dependent upon you. Lead us in in confidence, Lord, in those moments of evangelism. We know, Lord, it takes the work of you. People have to be born again. So let us not be discouraged when, when maybe we're rejected. But let us not waver. Let us not ever doubt your power, your might. Because you can you can you can do the transplant of the hardest heart because we are all your creation. Nothing is outside of you. So, Father, we pray, just as our Savior prayed, your will and all of this be done. Lead us and guide us. And let us close now, Lord, uh, with lifting our voice in praise and worship and let, Lord, let this message, these words, your words, not be lost, but let them grow deep in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.